Hey folks, we are continuing with the Transitional Book of Doctrines and Disciplines series. I'm Jeffrey Rickman. I'm the host of Plain Spoken, and here we have TJ. TJ, how are you doing today? Doing all right, and I'm not muted this time. Yeah. So. Yeah. Constant, <laughs> constant struggle doing a professional job here, but we we do what we do, and it's good enough. If this is your first time listening, I don't know why you would hop in on on this particular episode, but We've had a good ride along the way. We've covered a lot of good material. Today we're starting on part four of the Ministry of the Called. What we had previously been covering for a long period of time was the layout of the local church and the different kind of relationships it has with external bodies, internal bodies. Last episode we talked about church planting. Every episode has been surprisingly interesting and worthy, but before we turn on the cameras today, TJ, you were saying... I don't remember, but I was was going to say that this one looks like it's going to be a little bit more interesting because it's talking about like pastoral requirements and stuff like that. So I think I'm interested in that. Other people might not be, but no, I, be cool. it the the quality of the leadership very much determines what you're going to get in the organization. So no, but you were saying. Uh, I'm ready to be done with oh, this. Oh, <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, I feel like that's every episode, because yeah. it's just, it's like, oh, this is, we're still going on this. This is episode 10, and we're... It's hard to dedicate through. the required thought and energy to care about all these minutia, but time and time again, we get to this stuff and go, it's a good thing that most of this is spelled out, so... Um, another frustration that we've had is the awareness that the transitional book of doctrines and discipline continues to be edited and augmented, and I was very pleased this week to get an email from Keith Boyette with all the additions and errata of the transitional book as it stands here. So it's like 15 documents. I have not made my way through them yet, so there's not going to be anything presented here. We'll probably go back at the end and correct anything that, that got amended. But for right now, TJ has the updated version on his computer. I have the old older version, and uh, so we'll notice differences between what the two of us have and talk about it on well, so far, this episode. That's, that's what we've been doing this entire time, is I've always pulled up the web version, and you had, had downloaded a version a while back, so you could go back and make, like, marks on the on the pages and whatnot. So, and I don't think, I don't, I haven't noticed any huge differences, if there were any. Yeah, the, the most recent version that they've got on the website now was published at the end of last month on the 30th. Okay. So, uh, But yeah, there, there haven't been huge earth-shattering differences, but stuff dealing with, um, well, last week the section that we skipped talking about churches that refuse to be in compliance or pay what is owed with pension liabilities, there was a threat of putting a lien on the property, and that threat is now removed. Now there there is no single threat that I'm aware of in the transitional book that uh, that makes a threat to the local church. So to my knowledge, all of the different things that they've done have been for the benefit of local churches and, and making things run more smoothly, but we'll see that as we go through. I guess we'll see. Okay. So for people joining us, we're on in paragraph 401 um, on my old version. It's on page 49 on TJ's version. It's on page 50. So this section is called Part 4, The Ministry of the Called, and Paragraph 401 is Ministry in the Church. So uh, go ahead. If you haven't downloaded it, um, just go to, what's the website? Is it globalmethodist.org? This is globalmethodist.org, and then there's a lot of stuff after that, but it's it's on their website. It's pretty easy to find. 
If you go to the website, you'll be able to find where to down. <coughs> excuse me, where to download this, and uh, you can follow along with us. But I, I'll have it on the screen here if you're watching. All right. Um, oh, the newer I, version. This is, this is the old version. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So you won't be seeing the new version on mine. So we'll point out any differences. Okay. Very good. Okay. Sorry. All right. I'll, I'll start off. Ministry in the church. Point one. The church's ministry is derived from the ministry of Christ, who bids all people to receive salvation and follow him as disciples in the way of love. This summons to ministry is to the whole people of God, or laity, uh, Greek is laos, who are, quote, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, charged to, quote, declare the praises of him who has called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And if you don't know it, that's a quote from 1 Peter Chapter 2, verse 9. Baptism initiates this call to ministry empowered by the Holy Spirit. So we're already getting back into baptism being an initiatory thing, not necessarily um, to be conflated with the new birth, although clearly there's some overlap there. Um, anything else to note before we go on, TJ? Um, I guess something that jumped out at me, um, the end of that first sentence, um, and follow him as disciples in the way of love mm -hmm. rather than like holiness. Yeah, holiness or light or truth. Yeah, or... that's how I would word it because love sounds a little too hippie-ish for me, and it just harkens to liberal theology where the only thing that matters is love and nothing else. Yeah, I and think I don't like that. We we are just particularly sensitive to the ways in which that particular word has been misused by people with an agenda. But it's important to remember that God is love and in sure, 1 absolutely. John it's absolutely that if we ever get to an extreme where we just don't even like the word love, then yeah, <laughs> we're we're in bad shape. So sure, yeah. it's okay to have our our ears pricked and and ready to uh, see anything problematic, but as it is you know, that he's the Lord of love. I, I, don't, I don't think it okay. needs to be a big deal. The other thing I don't that, think it's a big deal. It just jumped out at me for yeah. some reason. Yeah, it does seem, for some reason, it seemed uh, to, to jump out as well. But I remember that they operated off of the United Methodist Book of Discipline as the backbone of this. And, and you're just giving them the benefit of the doubt. That, or it's just... there's There's nothing intrinsically bad about it, sure. Yeah. Or like even threatening about it. It all just determines how it's contextualized, or right. spins on how it turns on how it's contextualized. It's, it's only an issue because liberal theologians have mm -hmm. made it an issue. But if you get rid of every word or terminology that has been co-opted, then we've just got to... Sure, yeah. No. We, we have to do a reclaiming project, not a, an abandoning project. Yeah, but it's just hard to, to do that and say, okay, by... Well, and that's a lot of what I do on Plain Spoken is here's what they say, but what they're, they're saying the same words, but they mean very different things by it. And unless you find the energy to do that, language is always going to get co-opted. Sure. So. Okay. The other thing to pick on from this section is the clear um, reference. Well, it's it's a biblical reference, but a, a Protestant doctrine is the priesthood of all believers. And so the notion that the whole body of Christ is called to follow Christ. It's not just priests. Uh, we are a priestly nation. Every single believer is called to be uh, a mediator, in a sense, between God and the world. There is one mediator, Christ Jesus, but when we brought in, we are brought into his ministry, the priestly ministry of mediation, then it has an equal call on all of us. Okay, let's get in uh, point two. 
with the exception of the offices of bishop and presiding elder, which are reserved for elders, all laity and clergy may serve in various offices. Offices of ministry refer to what followers of Christ do for the general building up of the body of Christ. Offices include, but are not limited to, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, administrators, miracle workers, healers, and helpers. And of course, there it references Ephesians and 1 Corinthians that has lists of these titles, functions. The Holy Spirit works in and through a call to ministry and the subsequent discernment and affirmation of that call by the church. Okay, so that concludes that section. Anything to reflect on? No, not really. You didn't. It didn't look like you had any uh, notes on that at all either. I didn't get a chance to take any notes oh, on this one. This yeah, book. I haven't okay. read this at all. I'm less prepared for this episode than usual. Um, uh, the thing I did note right off the bat was that bishop and presiding elder are only available for elders, but all other positions can be filled by laity or clergy. So, I just assumed that was the way it was in the United Methodist Church, so I didn't. Yeah, maybe. I, I don't recall. I mean, because I guess it wouldn't really make sense in my head that they would make a lay member a district superintendent. No, no that would be kind of strange. Yeah, so it just... And then whatever. there's a pneumatology at the end that the Holy Spirit works in and through a call to ministry. So there's a, an undergirding theology of call in ordained ministry that... Um, I've always found kind of to be problematic, but I mean, it's part of the water we've been swimming in mm -hmm. for so long. But there, it's true that in the Old Testament, there were prophets that experienced a divine calling, a specific event that they could call, uh, point to. But the United Methodist Church and now the Global Methodist Church seems to see it as normative, like an expectation that all clergy have a calling event, a strong feeling that right. they are called. And, and then who are you to question that calling if... Exactly. If they're unqualified. Yeah. Whatever so, that yeah, there's, there's some discernment that the church reserves for itself. But even so, there are a number of people who enter ministry because they claim to have a calling. And I don't think they're lying, but I'm of the mind that one's feelings don't correspond with the truth. Sometimes right, yeah. that they do. But, you know, I remember I did, I, I counseled a clergy woman one time who'd been cheating on her husband and leading, it just abandoned her churches. She was a very confused person, but man, she had a call, let mm. me tell you. And um, I'm just of the mind that, that uh, so I remember studying Quakers in seminary, and Quakers do not have a notion of call. They don't have a notion that individuals should even select themselves for service. Rather, it's the local church that looks at the gifts and graces of individuals and lifts them up for hmm. service. And I remember at the time, I was like, man, I don't like that. But the reality, I mean, what I did, I was not lifted up by a church to be clergy. I, I elected myself, and that was really a problem. I was not fit for ministry whenever I, I entered in. And so I think it's much better to have a church-centered understanding of who's called to ministry rather than an individual calling. And I, I think we're going to see a lot more of this language. Do you have any thoughts before we move on to the next portion? No, I didn't know that was a Quaker thing, but I kind of like that. Yeah, yeah. I took a whole course on the Holy Spirit, different understandings of the Holy Spirit, and of course the Holy Spirit has something to say about who we ordain for leadership in Christ's holy church. And so that was the point 
of intersection there. So we'll come back to that. Um, for right now, let's go on to paragraph 402 on certified lay ministers. So why don't you read this portion, TJ? All right. Number one, a certified lay minister is a professing member of a local congregation who has received special training in Wesleyan doctrine and our denominational polity and endorsements by the church in order to serve the church as laity. This category encompasses all those who were previously named certified lay servants, certified lay speakers, certified lay ministers, deaconesses, home missionaries. Missioners. Missioners. What is a home missioner? Don't ask me that. <laughs> okay. And lay missioners. Um, certified lay ministers may work in, in, in any area of the church's ministry, including leading, teaching, proclaiming, preaching, evangelizing, worshiping, and caring ministry. A laity... As laity. As laity. A certified lay minister is not subject to the approval or appointment of the bishop or presiding elder although they may request the lay minister serve in a ministry capacity outside his or her own local church. So so a lay minister, oh, a certified lay minister, mm -hmm. is not subject to the bishop or presiding elder. Yeah, technically, even in the global Methodist church, deacons and elders are subject to a bishop that can appoint them or unappoint them, move them, um, has the authority to do so hypothetically. It's it's not necessarily going to be seen a whole lot in the GMC that pastors are moved against the will of the church or the, the pastor. Actually, that's never going to happen probably in the GMC. But even so, uh, ordained clergy understand themselves to be serving at the pleasure of a bishop, and that's not to be the understanding of certified lay ministers. Rather, they report, it would seem, primarily to their local church, and they are uh, certified by the denomination. Interesting. I think so. And then with that list of all these different functions, in the United Methodist Church, it was hard enough to suss out the differences between deacon and elder, and then with each of these, you had just different people who liked different titles and wanted to imagine a specific place and function for each of them. I, I kind of think a lot of that was unnecessary. But now I, I, I think I understood this to be collapsing all of those different functions in the UMC into this one certified lay minister role in the local church. I think that's what it was saying. Yeah, this, this category encompasses all those who were previously named in, in these other ways. Right. So... Okay. All right. Uh, Nothing else on that? You want to go on to point two? Yeah, qualifications. Persons desiring to be certified lay ministers must fulfill the following qualifications. A, professing member of a local global Methodist congregation or its predecessor for at least two years. So you have to be in the global Methodist church or some kind of other um, Methodist denomination uh, for at least two years. Well, it says predecessor. Yeah. So United Methodist okay, Church. Okay, so we okay, predecessor, just United Methodist Church. Mm -hmm. So we're not even okay. Uh, B satisfactory completion of a course in lay ministry approved by the Commission on Higher Education and Ministry, covering the church's doctrine, history, polity, and basic Bible knowledge. C satisfactory completion of at least one advanced course in lay ministry approved by the Commission on Higher Education and Ministry 
on an area of ministry, uh, examples, preaching, worship, leading, caring ministry, etc. cetera, uh, coursework or training in other settings may be counted to meet this requirement at the discretion of the board of ministry. B, national, or D, national background check. E, written recommendation by the pastor and endorsement by majority vote of the pastor parish relations committee and the charge conference. F, interview and approval by the annual conference board of ministry, a public service, public service of commitment recognizing the certification is recommended. Okay. Not required, but recommended. So that's the end of point two. Yeah. It had one, two, three, four, five, six stipulations on how it is a certified lay minister is supposed to operate within the GMC structure. Okay, so certified lay minister is different from deacon or elder. That's... Yes. Yeah, absolutely. This is a, a an official function within the local church occupied by a lay person. Okay, so this is the one... I think that we had gone over this before and said that they, so this is in the UMC that was a, a, a it could be indefinite, right? Because that's what you, was that what you were before you became? No, I was a local licensed local pastor. Local licensed pastor. Okay, yeah. so that's different from this. Yeah, yeah. So this, a, a local licensed pastor is clergy. Okay. And then a certified lay minister is not considered clergy. They would be considered uh, kind of like a clergy helper, but who's still laity. That's how I've always understood it. Gotcha. Okay. So, like, give me an example of that in a local church, because I don't. We obviously don't think we've got any here. Well, so no, we actually do. JC is a cert was a certified lay minister of the United Methodist Church. However, I decided I didn't trust them. I mean, as you see here, the denomination itself. You didn't trust the UMC. Yeah, I didn't JC. trust them okay. to train. Anybody, so it, it doesn't mean anything to me that they went through certified lay minister right. courses or anything. Here, what the GMC is imagining is that they will continue to validate the ministry of lay people who are trained to preach or lead worship or do caring ministry. They're just going to do it better than the United Methodist Church. What I've done as a pastor is pretty much train people up to to operate how I want them to operate. Teach them, you know, I teach doctrine and history and all that stuff. I haven't. I haven't trusted denominational leadership to do that. I hope to trust the global Methodist Church leadership to do that, but I've just generally found denominational leadership to be lukewarm and insufficient. And so there are a lot of people who take a lot of courses, but they have terrible theology, and they're not good preachers, and so I just don't see the point. But hopefully, you know, James Lambert, my buddy who's come on the show once or twice before, he's very passionate about this. He wants to to really help the GMC educate good, solid certified lay ministers that hypothetically they can serve not just in their local church, but they can do pulpit supply for other pastors whenever they need to take vacations. They can uh, eventually teach and instruct others as well. Um, if, you, if, it, if it were done well, it could be something that really operates to the benefit of the denomination. I guess that makes sense. Okay. All right. Why don't you do uh, point three? <clears throat> there were no, uh, you didn't have any about any of those qualifications? Hmm. I, I guess, I mean, certainly not the national background check. Um, yeah, no, that just, that makes sense. Must be in a global Methodist church or UMC for two years, so you just can't have somebody new coming in. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, I, all uh, the courses I guess are up in the air because I, I mean, we, I don't know if it goes over. I think it goes over some of them. When I glanced at this, yeah, last week. Okay, um, but I don't, I don't recall. So I guess if I could, they'll have a, I assume an approved list of here are the courses you've got to take and from what colleges. If well, and I don't, college. I don't think they'll usually make you go to a college. Rather, the the conference will supply the schooling. The, they'll they'll okay. hire somebody like James Lambert to host a class and teach everybody. I assume a lot of this will happen over Zoom now. But um, I, yeah. I have no I, that I'm okay with that because yeah. generally colleges can get certain colleges can get a little iffy mm-hmm. on what they teach. Now, for ordained ministry, they are going to require a college degree, college coursework. But right. for intro courses on doctrine and history, no, any local, any annual conference should be able to do that itself. Okay, I guess that makes sense for just a, a lay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Three renewal of certification. Certification for lay ministry may be renewed every three years by the annual conference board of ministry based on the following: a an annual report to the charge conference and annual conference board of ministry outlining what ministry had been done during the year and given evidence of satisfactory performance. B, endorsement of by majority votes of the charge conference annually. C, written recommendation for renewal by the pastor. D, completion of an additional national background check every three years. E, satisfactory completion of at least one additional advanced course in lay ministry approved by the Commission on Higher Education and Ministry in the last three years. And for... Nope, um, nope that's a new section. Oh, okay, so. yes. That's weird. So there were, there were five conditions of renewal of certification. So they've got to be renewed every three years. There's got to be an annual report to the charge conference on what they've done endorsement by a majority vote of the charge conference every year, Re- written recommendation for the, from the pastor, completion of a background check, and you got to take another course. I okay. think those... So this is, yeah, you can't be a lay minister for an indefinite period of time. There's a renewal process, mm-hmm. which is great. And something, I don't know if they'll keep this language in here, but there is an expectation that pastors uh, do not have anyone preach that is not um, accredited, credentialed by the denomination. So that's what's at stake here is hopefully, you know, you have this formal process with these people that have been formally trained that have a good relationship with the pastor and they've taken these courses, they know what they're doing, and you don't use anybody outside of that for pulpit supply. Ideally, but like uh, that doesn't include like guest speakers, I assume. S figures, guest speakers. guest speakers. Yeah, surely it can't. But I, I don't know. I mean, I doubt they're going to be strict on any of this. But yeah. this this is one of those things that was originally crafted to kind of control the message. Nobody can speak to a United Methodist audience that has not towed the line and been accredited. Um, and they they still exercise that discipline a lot of the time. But I mean, it just. It's one of those things that they'll be really strict in one place in one context and then not care at right. all in another. So yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't I doubt they'll be strict on it until it becomes an issue at some point. And then it'll just probably just gonna be in that one area. Yeah. 
another so. time when it's really good to have something in writing. Yeah. So, all right, okay. point four, go ahead. Four conditions of service. A, a certified lay minister serves as a volunteer, but a... Honorarium. Honorarium. Wow. Okay. That's money. I, today is not my day. But an honorarium and expenses for pulpit supply or other specialized ministries outside one's own local church are appropriate. A certified lay minister serving as a lay staff member of a church or other ministry should be equitably compensated for their work. So that deals with payment. B. Certifications as a lay minister may be transferred to another annual conference if the person relocates. Subsequent renewal in that new annual conference is in accordance with paragraph 402.3. C. Persons who held active certification in a predecessor denomination shall automatically be received as certified lay ministers in the Global Methodist Church providing that they have met the requirements of paragraph 402.2b through c through coursework in the predecessor denomination subscribed to the doctrinal standards and social witness of this transitional book of doctrines and discipline and agreed to abide by its discipline subsequent renewal in its accordance with paragraph 402.3 and those not meeting the requirements of paragraph 402.2b through c are not certified but may work towards certification and are not required to repeat coursework they've already completed. So I assume all this is in place so as to help people wash out that are just not going to get with the program. So anything else to remark on any of this? I don't think so. Okay. Let's go on to orders of ministry. This is paragraph 403. Clergy are those who have been called out from among God's people for particular service to his church. Remember, um, a concept of holiness is that people are called out of the world or separated from the world uh, by virtue of being holy. So this kind of overlaps that concept. A calling from God may take many expressions— and come at any age in the life of an individual. Scripture bears witness to both the young, as in Samuel and 1 Samuel 3, and those who are older, say Abraham in Genesis 12, or Moses in Exodus 3, being summoned by God into his work, as well as men and women, and those whose encounters with God were sudden and dramatic, and those whose call may have been more gradual, naturally unfolding over a period of many years. In addition to those specifically charged with preaching and teaching, 1 Peter 5, 1-4, the early church also set apart seven disciples who were, quote, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, end quote, to distribute food to the widows among them. I wonder, yeah, disciples just means followers. Uh, so yeah, there were followers of Jesus. Uh, this was in Acts chapter 6, verses 1-6. through six. Individuals such as Stephen, Phoebe, and Timothy served in various ways to the benefit of the people of God. Whether a deacon or elder, all clergy are required to live lives of integrity and self-control as they hold fast to the mystery of faith. And the proof text there is 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13. Anything to be said so far, TJ? I'm just trying to figure out the point of this whole section. 
I think they're establishing like, the theology of call, but they're also establishing that even though there's a priesthood of all believers, there is still uh, a separated class of ordained clergy that, yes, everybody's part of the priesthood, but these people are not just practical functionaries, but ordained by God to to fill in a different role than laity. Okay. <laughs> okay. Here, let's take another, okay, yeah, we'll do the next paragraph and then uh, see what we come up with. Maybe it'll click for me. Following the historic practice of Methodism, those who serve as clergy within the GMC shall be both elected by their peers and ordained by the bishop on behalf of the whole church. Election is the action by which the clergy of an annual conference, after carefully examining the qualifications, abilities, and readiness of a candidate for ministry, incorporate individuals into the membership of the Covenant Fellowship of those called to serve the Church. Election carries with it the right to vote and participate in the business of the annual conference. Ordination is the action by which the Church sets apart those who have been so elected to a particular order of ministry for the good of the whole Church. Ordination is conferred by the laying on of hands by a bishop and others among the people of God in the conference. And there are two orders of clergy. But before we get into that, we're going to hear any reflections TJ has. I'm just still trying to get this to figure out this in my head. Um, Someone, everybody's a, there's a priesthood of all believers, mm -hmm. but at this point they're separating. Well, what makes deacons and elders special? Yeah. Yeah. What do they do that the rest of the body cannot do, does not do, should not do? Okay. But also what it just made clear is that a person is not properly considered clergy unless not only the bishop consecrates them, but also Lay all of on. the other clergy vote them in. Okay, and you have to... Ordination is conferred by the laying on of hands, mm -hmm. specifically by a bishop. Yeah. So you have this... this um, that I don't think that surprises many people. Yeah, laying on of hands is biblical, right. but we see it everywhere. But the part that might surprise people is that really uh, the vote of their peers matters quite a bit because you're being inducted into a society of sorts. And so the, the key uh, phrase that I think is important here is election is the action by which the clergy of an annual conference, after carefully examining the qualifications, abilities, and readiness of a candidate for ministry, incorporate individuals into the membership of Covenant Fellowship. So what I notice there is that they have to do their homework on candidates. It's quite explicit there. Do you get the same impression? Well, where they were supposed to do their homework on candidates before, were they not? Yeah, so what has been the case in the United Methodist Church, I, I'm, there's actual legislation that's going to be brought to the, the Global Methodist Convening Conference next year. What was the case in the United Methodist Church was that they commissioned um, the committee, the Board of Ordained Ministry, to do this thorough examination of candidates and then recommend them to the annual conference, which would then rubber stamp it unless there was something really extreme happened. Mm -hmm. What we found was that boards of ordained ministry got compromised and refused to, to actually filter people out that did not agree with the doctrine, and the rest is history, as they say. So people like me are saying, well, in the Global Methodist Church, fine, let's have people that do the hard work of collecting the information, but then let them circulate the information about new candidates to everybody who's interested so that when we have annual conference, everybody knows who the candidates are and they, they know the concerns, and they can actually make an informed vote about 
you know, if you went before ordination, you would have appeared before the Board of Ordained Ministry. They would have asked you all the right questions. They would have it on file. They would have your answers on file. Everything about you would be open for examination by the society that would otherwise induct you in or say, hey, no, you know, T.J. Owens, he's a kind of a weird dude. Let's let's not have... And of course, nobody should be actually turned away for being weird, but if you give unsatisfactory yeah. responses on your, your doctrine or if you have a, a dysfunctional personal life, then that should be known on the front end, and we shouldn't be going, well, the Board of Ordained Ministry looked at him. He must be okay. That didn't work. So yeah, there should be people collecting information on candidates for ministry that's then disseminated among the clergy who then make an informed vote. Okay, so this... This says that the information is then going to be passed around to the annual conference? It does not say that. Okay. This is the exact same language, I think, as in the United Methodist Church. So it's saying they, sh- they should do their homework on it. It doesn't say how the homework is done. Okay, but you said there's going to be legislation that's put forward that says, okay, at the convenience this, conference. and then we're going to yeah, pass this information. Yeah, and around. I'm not clear on it. I've talked with a few other people about it. Heck, I might be the main one presenting it. But um, I, I want there to be a private password-protected website that only clergy have access to, where there's a file, a folder on every single person, and you can read their files. You can check them out for yourself, and you can talk privately amongst the clergy about each person that you're going to be voting on. Because if you don't have that kind of quality control, you're going to have the exact same problem well, again. Well, clergy and, I guess, a people that vote in the annual conference. You're just saying just clergy? Uh, only clergy can vote on clergy. Laity cannot vote on who gets brought into clergy. Okay. Not even the um, certified lay ministers. No. Yeah. Or um, what is Vicky? What is Vicky's role? Uh, she's got a lay vote. leaders. Yeah. Okay. She's just a lay leader. Yeah. No. It doesn't matter who you are. Only only clergy can vote on clergy. Okay. It hasn't said that yet. I'm absolutely certain that's the case. So let's get into the order of deacons. But well, let's make sure. Did, do you feel like I conveyed? with clarity what the difference is between the UMC and what I want the GMC to be so far as how we scrutinize. I think so, yeah. Okay. So the the problem also being now we've already inducted in all these clergy in the GMC that did not get exposed to proper scrutiny. So we're right. actually looking at what I want to see. You know, the, the, the Methodist language is watching over one another in love. That's a very kind way for saying guaranteeing quality control. So I, I want, I think I should be scrutinized as is my doctrine in keeping with the Wesleyan tradition, the Methodist tradition, but also we should be scrutinizing one another graciously, trying to make room for everybody, but also understanding some people are already probably in that need to be not in. Yeah, they, they just kind of, well, I guess it depends on the uh, the annual conference, um, but they just said, hey, you were previously clergy, here you go. Yeah. Yeah, the the GMC has been. I mean, it's built. It's building a bridge while you're walking on it. There's no way they could have done the scrutiny. Right. Well, and the temptation will be, hey, we've already started off right. We've got all this energy. Let's use it on mission. Let's use it on making new disciples. And there are going to be people like me saying, no, let's let's spend it on the purity of the body. Let's spend it. Make sure that those who are in are actually in. Actually have that spiritual DNA that we need. And there are, there are going to be a lot of people that really are not excited about that because what is going to be exposed if you drive for purity like that is a lot of people that are on the inside actually don't share. Well, how dare you question my calling? Yeah, there's right that. back to that. Yeah, questioning your calling, but also questioning like a, a, a big holdover that I think we're going to have from the United Methodist Church is, hey, we're more about a feeling than we are about a set of priests, of, 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 presuppositions or 
uh, convictions. Like as soon as you've got like a li- do you well, and what what we're going to get down to here is when someone is ordained, they're going to answer a series of questions that they're either going to lie or tell the truth on, and so the body has to determine are they lying. But the expectation is that people actually believe in these things, and if they don't, we say, you're out. We don't want you. And that is so far from the culture that we've had. It seems so mean. What we want to imagine is if we cast a big, amazing vision, people will just want to come on. We'll win them to to assent. And that's a fictitious understanding of how this works, I think. I think there have always needed to be gatekeepers. But when you're looking at that, you're looking at people coming away saying, this is a bunch of judgmental hypocrites. You know, this is a bunch of mean people. Don't join the GMC. They're haters, you know. And I, it remains to be seen if GMC leadership can have people complaining publicly about them like that. Well, so how would you determine if somebody's lying on their questions that they send forward? Because say all of this information is sent out mm-hmm. to the clergy of the annual conference, you're just going to see like, okay, this is what they answered. They made the right answer. Sure. Okay, good to go. Well, there's also this wonderful thing called social media, and uh, there's also private conversations that they will have been a part of. So hypothetically, if somebody says that um, they will abide by the sexual ethics of the GMC, but you can't help but notice that they've got a rainbow flag right on their profile picture, there's some explain that needs to happen. But also, I mean, much more—I mean, there there may or may not be some of that, but the the much more realistic scenario is we have a doctrine called— entire sanctification that we preach. But there are a lot of people that don't actually believe it's possible. And so what do you do with a person who is uh, habitually permissive of sin and their public witness and actually, and to some degree, fights for sinners to persist in sin? I see clergy do this all the time publicly. And that they understand themselves to be being gracious and drawing the circle wide or whatever, but the, when you have people whose public ministry is not entire sanctification— holiness, but it's actually making room for people who are not interested in that. If you see a a habitual public witness like that, then I think there are a lot of people that will come knocking and saying, hey, I have a call, and will say, you might have a call, but it's not to the Global Methodist Church. We we don't have room for clergy like you. Okay. And then if, if somebody is actually honest and says, no, I don't believe this, then we can have that on the front end and say, okay, well, you're out. But for people who lie, there are additional ways of collecting information. There's not a 100% effective right, way yeah. of doing that, but um, we have more tools at our disposal than a committee. I, I guess I would like to see like these uh, board certifications like recorded and that be passed around too because you mm. can tell more about how somebody – like the way they answer a question. Sure. That's that's – uh, that would be helpful to me, but I don't know if that's going to happen. Just putting that out there. So That would be cool, yeah. yeah. I wonder how many That'd, people would go through the process if they knew that they were being recorded and scrutinized yeah, by. Yeah, I think that would be more helpful. You got it on You got it on tape. And yeah. not, not, not release this to, like, everybody, but fine. No. The clergy is the people that are making the decision. Fine. Let's, yeah. That's, that's fine. Uh, you and me, same – I, I'm exact same place. I, if you're watching this, I want to know. We we want to know how this strikes other people. We might be in our own bubble here, but to to my mind, at least, you can't you can't seriously consider examining uh, t- making an informed vote unless you have something like this. It, it means more if you see somebody actually say it rather than oh somebody said that they said it and it's written mm-hmm. down on paper somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So let's go on. Let's go. Let's learn about the order of deacons. Point one. Within the people of God, some persons are called to the ministry of deacon. 
which is a ministry of word, service, compassion, and justice. I'm almost certain this came directly from the United Methodist Church. This is not biblical in nature. This is theology that, that we came up with. So back, back to the document. <clears throat> the words deacon, deaconess, and diaconate all spring from a common Greek root, diakonos, or servant, and diakonia, or service. This ministry exemplifies and leads the church in the servanthood every Christian is called to live both in the church and in the world. Deacons are to witness to the word in their words and actions and to embody and lead the community's service in the world for the sake of enacting God's compassion and justice. Within and beyond a local church, deacons may, among other ministries, lead in worship, preach and teach, conduct marriages, bury the dead, care for the sick and needy, and interpret the needs of the world to the church. Deacons may also consecrate or assist with the sacraments in accordance with paragraph 313. Deacons may serve in a variety of offices within and beyond a local church, including but not limited to serving as pastor of a local church. Deacons retain the responsibility as laity to witness and service in the world. Ordination as a deacon is for life, whether a person is subsequently ordained an elder or not. Persons may remain as permanent deacons should they desire to do so. So there's no uh, renewal process for this like there is lay ministers? At least if there is, it's not indicated here, but it doesn't immediately sound like there is. Yeah, so you're in, you're in, unless, I guess, they. I mean, they can vote to kick you out if there's something crazy. Absolutely, so. yeah. Yeah, if you're brought up on charges, yeah. there's a church trial, or I, I don't know if you can be summarily uh, defrocked. I think it'd be called defrocked if if you were a, a deacon. I don't know if, if you can do that without a trial. So uh, within the United Methodist Church, so my grandfather grew up in the predecessor body to the United Methodist Church. I think it was just called the Methodist Church. And you were a deacon first, consecrated a deacon first before you could then be consecrated an elder later on. They revised that theology later on so that elder and deacon were considered two different ministries altogether, and you could be ordained one without the other. And to become an elder, you had a provisional period, a three-year provisional eldership period, that then if you passed, you would be then consecrated a full elder. So that's the stage at which I got tripped up. They made me a provisional elder, but never let me go through. So... What they're doing now is kind of a, a synthesis of both of those models where anyone who's ordained, whether you're deacon or elder, has to be uh, ordained a deacon first. So whenever I was ordained, you'll remember Bishop Scott Jones put his hands on me and consecrated me a deacon, mm -hmm. and then me immediately afterwards consecrated me an elder. But there are a lot of people who were consecrated just a deacon, and they stay a deacon forever. I guess right. technically my diaconate ministry, according to this, goes on forever. It's, it's an eternal consecration. Maybe. I don't know. But um, the, the eldership, we're about to get into the order of elders, but deacon became this very broad thing in the United Methodist Church. If you read just Acts of the Apostles, you would think deacons are for feeding the poor and the widows. They're, they're for coordinating the food, and then also they can be filled by the Spirit like Philip and go and evangelize. You know, it, it's funny. They were, they were initially formed because there were widows that weren't getting fed. The Greek widows were not being fed as well as the Jewish widows, and so right. they consecrated these seven guys to go and feed them, but then a persecution happens. Well, Stephen, one of uh, them, gets gets feisty and killed for it, the first martyr, and then Philip 
leaves with a lot of the church and he starts, um, he, he, he baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch, he goes to Samaria, is making many converts there. So it's one of these things where you designate a ministry and then it becomes something else, and that's exactly what the diaconate became in the United Methodist Church. You could do pretty much anything and be a deacon. And so it sounds like they're carrying that over. What's the? I'm, I'm guessing the differences between just uh, the thing we just talked about, the lay minister, um, and a deacon is um, sacraments. Yes, yeah. lay ministers, are, I, I believe, are not allowed to administer. They can uh, help, but they can't consecrate. Okay, the so like the Lord's Supper, baptism. That's it. Those are our two sacraments. I assume they don't let them. Lay ministers marry people? Oh, I, th- I thought you were saying, like, get married. And I was like, no, no we don't no, have celibate. No, no, no. No, um, no like, they, I don't think that they are legitimate agents of um, the church or the state in that way. Okay. Yeah, so the other things besides, well, obviously, the, the sacraments and then the marriage, um, burying the dead, I, I assume they can, lay ministers would be able to perform a funeral, I would think. I think traditionally that would be seen as inappropriate, hmm. but in our church, I would love that. Okay. Um, lay ministers can lead in worship, um, preach and teach, care for the sick. They can do whatever they want. Don't yeah. mess with the deacons. Don't mess with them. They're consecrated. They do what they want. The deacons do, or the, the lay ministers? The The, the deacons Lay, certified lay ministers, I don't even know what to think of that, but deacons have a long history of, I feel a call, I want to do this ministry, it's something in the world, it's something connecting the world to the church in a way beyond what laity do, I don't have to explain it, you consecrate it and bless it, I'm going to do it. So certify me as a deacon, Yeah, I want to be a deacon now. It's so not certify, it's consecrate. 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 They are ordained, they're consecrated, it's an official ministry. They don't have to define it. You can tell I'm. Uh, I think it got way too spread out to mean much. I think there are deacons. It's just like, what are you? What are you doing? But, well, yeah, I'm just trying to determine. Like, okay, what's the what? What are the benefits of becoming a, a deacon over just staying a lay minister? Obviously, you don't. You, you become it for life, and you don't have to go through a, a recertification every three years. Um, you're not. Did I say certified again? You're consecrated yeah. for yeah. life. Yeah. Um, so I think we are going to find out if there is... I remember in seminary reading actual theologians examining the United Methodist theology around ordination and going, it's comprehensible. It's incomprehensible. It's it's inconsistent. Here you have one principle, it gets violated over here in this other way. I'm not sure that the GMC is going to be any more coherent in its understanding of what ordained ministry looks like. Uh, let's look at eldership. This will okay, be the final okay. section. We'll read the order of elders, and then we'll be we'll be done. Um, okay, point two. Order of elders. From among those ordained as deacons, some are called to carry on the historic work of the presbyteros, or elder, in the life of the church to the ministry of word, sacrament, and order. Traditionally, I've understood it to be word, sacrament, order, and service. All four. So I'm wondering what happened here. I, I I think this is a change. Those who were not ordained deacon prior to the to ordination as elder will be granted deacon's orders upon beginning their service in the Global Methodist Church. It is recommended that annual conferences recognize this 
grant through a special service. Those called to the ministry of elder bear authority and responsibility to proclaim God's word fearlessly. I like that. To teach God's people faithfully, to administer the sacraments, and to order the life of the church so that it may be both faithful and fruitful. Elders retain their calling as laity to witness and service in the world, as well as their call as deacons to word service, compassion, and justice among the people of God. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm. What are the differences? Yeah, so the sacraments. Well, deacons can do sacraments too. Can they really officiate the sacraments? No, word, service, compassion, and justice. They 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 cannot do the sacraments. They can't do the sac. Only elders can do the sacraments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Deacons. Methods. It's an expectation if you have a deacon in your congregation that they should be helping um, serve communion and be kind of like the connecting tissue for facilitating the sacraments. However, it's elders only that can can do the sacraments. Hope you got an elder. Nobody's getting the Lord's Supper. That's exactly a problem that's happened in Methodism at several times in history, because we have this very clear understanding of only the elders can consecrate the elements, can... and I, well, I think we're even harsher. So the Roman Catholic Church teaches that laity can baptize people into the faith. I don't think that the United I think that's Methodist- only in like really extreme sort of like somebody's dying, you can do it. Yeah. And that's it. But you, it's still a thing. Yeah. So, and I don't know that the United Methodist Church or the Global Methodist Church allows for that provision. I think oh. it's only an elder can do it. I think. Sorry, you're on your deathbed. Can't, uh, can't baptize you and you're not getting the Lord's Supper. But then it's it's also helpful when you don't believe that baptism is required for salvation. So it's just true, like, yeah, that stinks for you, but you know you can make it anyway. Yeah. But I, I'm I'm not a hundred percent certain on this. We haven't made our our whole way through the the book, so maybe they do make provision in life or death circumstances for a baptism from a deacon or a lay person. Yeah. Is there like a, a baptism section that we just haven't gotten to? I'm sure they probably almost is. certainly. Yeah. 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 They've yeah. laid out some theology, but there's sure to be more. Yeah, that would, that would be weird if they didn't have one. So, okay, so uh, as of right now, the only difference Well, and uh, I should go ahead and say within the United Methodist Church, there was a special document generated by a body commissioned by the General Conference. It was an official doctrinal document called By Water and the Spirit. That was the the one on baptism, and then there was um, the other one on communion was, I think, called This Holy Mystery, and that was a systematic theology of how we understand both of those sacraments to work, and they were really good and thoughtful documents. I'm not going to say they were perfect, but I got a lot out of reading them. I would like to think that they will apply in the Global Methodist Church. We'll see if there's any reference to it, but if if you want some thoughtful engagement with Wesleyan understanding of sacraments— those those are PDF documents you can find for free online. So uh, I'll try and remember to to put a link in the show notes here. All right, what were you going to say? Um, if I was going to say something, I forgot it. Okay. Uh, yeah. So my understanding, and it could be that I'm stupid, but it, it seems to me that that this dividing line between the lady as a whole, certified lay ministers, the diaconal ministry, and ministry of elders, all of that is just kind of, so first off, the Bible doesn't systematize it real explicitly for us. But secondly, it seems like there's a lot of wiggle room, and I think that that's intentional. And I think you can mock that, 
and sometimes I'm prone to mock, but I also think you don't want something that boxes you in too much. Well, yeah, no, if they if they made it more strict, like they can only that's that's what I would make fun of. Yeah. Like you can only do this as an elder, deacon or lay minister. That's I feel like that's a little excessive. That's yeah. a little ridiculous. There does seem to be a lot of wiggle room, a lot of leeway. The the threat is always that if you get too loosey goosey, then you can compromise the integrity of the local church. But if if this is held with the right balance of gravity and grace, then it can be of great benefit to not just a local church, but to the connection. You know, if we can maintain the integrity of our deacons and elders that are guaranteed voice and voted annual conference every year, then we can maintain bodies of integrity that can actually push back the gates of hell. Okay. All right. I think that's a good note to end on. Of course, this is not the conclusion of the entire section on um, ordained ministry. We're going to pick up next week on paragraph 404, types of ordained ministry, basic qualifications of the ordained. Um, So it's worth thinking through this stuff and, and praying on it. Uh, I, I think I would be remiss if I didn't note that the Roman Catholic understanding of ordination, at least for elders, is undergirded by a theology of the apostolic succession, that from the days of Peter and the Twelve, any uh, ordained clergy had their hands put on them originally by the first generation of disciples and apostles, the apostles, and then on down from one apostle, that when they put their hands on you, their apostolic gravity, authority, is put on you, and then you can put that onto others. And so that's what legitimates the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church, and that's what delegitimates the leadership of Protestantism, because our our elders have not received the apostolic authority by the laying on of hands. So we practice laying on of hands, but we don't understand that to be connected to uh, the original apostles in some kind of line that you can trace through history. Well, yeah, I would argue that I don't even think the Roman Catholic Church can do that. Oh, they can. Mm, Oh, they can and they do. They say they can. They brag about it. They say, I was, I was, uh, so-and-so laid his hands on me and they, yeah, it's like a genealogy. So you can question whether or not it's historically accurate, but they take a lot of pride in who they got hands laid on by. Well, yeah, with... So I can get into that. That's a whole. That's a whole different thing. I was, was going to hit the papacy, but yeah. Oh yeah. Some other time. All the way back to Peter, but we're not going to. If you enjoy these conversations, we hope you continue to stick with us as we go through the transitional book of doctrines and discipline. You'll see it's undergirded by a lot of biblical theology, and and we're doing our best to connect it all together so that this book is not some dry document that we resent, but something that actually binds us together. And we're we're proud to understand and subscribe to. So uh, if that's not what you're aiming toward, I don't know, first off, why you stuck with us for this full hour. But secondly, I would just urge you to reconsider your stance. If we're going to have a book of discipline, we should know what it is. We should respect it. We should uphold it. Um, I I really do welcome your feedback on any of the thoughts or uh, opinions that we've expressed in this time. I'm not going to pretend to be fully rounded out here, but in particular, I'm very interested in your thoughts on... Um, collecting information about candidates before they appear for um, approval at the annual conference. So I want to know your thoughts on um, what might be realistic about that or what might be problematic about that. If anybody wants to collaborate with me on legislation to put forward at the convening conference next year, 
My email is at plainspokenpod at gmail.com. You can also just send private correspondences there with any reflections that you have. Uh, want to urge you, uh, if you want to support the work that we're doing here and, and help it grow and help us generate more content for the building up of the church, you can go to locals. Uh, no, plainspoken.locals.com, and you can support us there monetarily, and I'm going to provide a year-end uh, giving statement and um, an accounting of what I've done with the money. Also, I've recently started a Substack for Plain Spoken, where all in one place you can have the video, you can have the audio, you can have a transcript, and I'm actually going to type some articles sometimes to go along with the content. So go ahead and find us on there. Uh, we appreciate all of the love and support. Make sure to like and subscribe and share with your friends. Let's continue growing this thing. God bless uh, the Methodist movement, the Global Methodist Church, and his people throughout all the world. God bless you for spending time with us. We'll see you later.